Hear the word of God from Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, when God gave his people instructions for worship through a variety of offerings. From chapter 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. If you bring a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, offer crushed heads of new grain roasted in the fire. Put oil and incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and the oil, together with all the incense, as a food offering presented to the Lord. From chapter 3. If your offering is a fellowship offering, and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering, a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. You must not eat any fat or any blood. From chapter 4. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, if the anointed priest sins, bring guilt bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, when they realize their guilt and the sin they committed becomes known, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of meeting. The elders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head before the Lord, and the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. If any member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, when they realize their guilt and the sin they have committed becomes known, they must bring as their offering for the sin they committed a female goat without defect. Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. If, however, they cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons, they are to bring as an offering for their sin a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour for a sin offering. They must not put olive oil or incense on it because it is a sin offering. They are to bring it to the priest who shall take a handful of it as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar on top of the food offerings presented to the Lord. It is a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for any of these sins they have committed and they will be forgiven. 
The rest of the offering will belong to the priest, as in the case of the grain offering. If anyone sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though they do not know it, they are guilty and will be held responsible. They are to bring to the priest as a guilt offering a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the wrong they have committed unintentionally, and they will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. They have been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. From chapter 7. These are the regulations for the guilt offering, which is most holy. The guilt offering is to be slaughtered in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered, and its blood is to be splashed against the sides of the altar. These are the regulations for the fellowship offering anyone may present to the Lord. If they offer it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with this thank offering, they are to offer thick loaves made without yeast and without and with olive oil mixed in, thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with oil, and thick loaves of the finest flour well kneaded and with oil mixed in. These then are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry about that waypoint. I forgot to turn my mic on. It's on now. (laughs) Hope you guys are doing a lot better than I am right now. Um, We're getting closer to the end of our sermon series in the Pentateuch. And I know we spent a lot more time in the first two books than we did in the last three books. We're sticking with more themes and motifs in the last three books as we finish up our series. There's a few reasons for this. Um, There's a fair amount of repetition in the last three books. There's also a lot of names and lists and census and laws that take up a lot of space on the pages, but not a lot of sermon time. So I hope you've seen over and over again in the Pentateuch the story of a creator God who passionately pursues his people. He has a rescuing, redeeming, and restoring plan for them. That is the gospel. I want you to hear this very well, my people. There's a lot of definitions of what the gospel is, but I want you to hear this. The gospel isn't just that Jesus came and died for our sins. That's a part of it. That's a huge part of it. That's our justification. But the gospel is the whole story, that God has a plan He rescues by setting the lion and the lamb. He redeems, he restores his people and will one day renew all that is wrong. We are part of this incredible story and that is our good news. That's the gospel. Our text today is focusing on the first seven chapters of Leviticus where it describes offerings and sacrifices. I know this is a weird and difficult subject matter for us. Animal sacrifice is a very foreign concept to us. Burning grain and fat is very far removed from us and that we would often just skip this passage. But talk it up to something that is, we talk it up to something that has happened a long time ago, but not really relevant and significant for us today. But today I hope to show you four reasons why God had these offering and sacrifices intentionally here. But before I go into those four reasons uh, for these sacrifices, I want to first state and establish that one of those reasons isn't for the priests to eat. 
That's what I was told before. I was told that these sacrifices and offerings were put into place because the priests need to eat. Yes, the Lord provided for his priests through these, but that isn't the main concern. I've heard pastors connect um, pastors of today with the priests of the Old Testament. And I've heard them say, you know, this pastors today are very much like the priests of the Old Testament. But that is not the case. And I want you to hear that. Pastors are not Old Testament priests or a modern day version of it. Totally different. Christ has come and fulfilled the priestly role through his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, Christ was the final priestly mediator between God and his people. And Christians share in that role through him. That means that Christians are not dependent upon priests within the church to interpret scripture for them or to bring God's blessing or forgiveness of them. All Christians are equally priests through Christ and set upon the same ground before the cross. Let me say that again. All Christians are equally priests um, before Christ. This does not mean that we should do away with pastoral or ministerial authorities. Okay, just making sure I said that. Those authorities are a part of a way that God blesses his church with instruction and sound doctrine and daily Christian living. But we are not priests. Pastors are not priests in the Old Testament sense. We are all a priesthood of believers. Scriptures show this. In Hebrews 4.14 it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we have here this incredible passage talking about priests and, and sacrifices. So these are the things I want to talk about. I want to, I want to take a look at the offerings found in Leviticus. I want to try to simplify it for you guys in a little bit and tell you what the five main offerings and sacrifices are. So I'm going to fly through this stuff, so I hope you can pay attention to learning here. But the very first one is what we call the burnt offering. The burnt offering is an offering of a male without blemish, of livestock of male without blemish, according to the wealth of the family. It is fully burnt. All of it is given away, given to be burnt up on the altar. It is for the atonement on behalf of the person offering um, of the sins. It also demonstrates dedication. That's the first offering. The second offering is the meal offering or the tribute offering. This is an offering of unleavened cakes or grains that must be salted, which I find so um, weird. Like out of nowhere, it says, okay, make sure there's no yeast, which we understand yeast to symbolize impurity. So there's no yeast to them. But then it says it must be salted. And it says it's something very unique, a phrase. It says the salt of the covenant. Where, nowhere else in the Bible does it say salt of the covenant. It's such an intriguing phrase, but where else do we hear the word salt? Jesus in the New Testament calls us to be salt. And what is salt for? It's meant to preserve and to season. And I love this illustration, this image here of cake that is salted by the covenant, that the covenant itself seasons and preserves. Do you hear that? I just think that's the coolest thing. The covenant is what seasons and preserves. And we are supposed to be that salt in the world now. We're supposed to be representatives of the covenant promises of God. We're to season and to preserve. The portion, there's a token portion burnt that of this offering that's given up as a burnt offering, but then eat, the rest of it's eaten by the priest. This is for a thankfulness for first fruits. The third offering is a peace offering, uh, which includes a thank offering, a vow offering, and a free will offering. These are males or female animal without blemish according to wealth. Uh, free will is a slight blemish is allowed for that one. Fat, the fat portions are burnt in this offering. And a meal is shared in fellowship with the priest and the offerer. 
is for an unexpected blessing, for deliverance, and for general thankfulness. So that's the peace offering. The sin offering. This is where a male bull or goat for the priest and a full co- or is offered for, or for, for, for the full congregation. A female goat is offered for an individual. The fat portions are burnt and given away. The other portions are eaten by the priest. This is for basically any situation where purification is needed. So this is where the, the priest, who if he messed up, he would offer this as purification for himself or for the whole congregation. Number five, it's the guilt offering. This is for a ram without blemish. Fat portions are to be burned and then the rest of it eaten by the priest. This is where any situation where there has been desecration or sacrilege of something holy where there's objective guilt. These are five examples of offerings and sacrifices here given in the first seven books of Leviticus. And this is a quick and simplistic overview of the offerings in this first bit. All of these sacrifices offer up an animal except for one. And a, a common pattern is adopted for each offering. This falls into two parts. The first is the action of the worshiper, and the second is the duties of the priest. An individual wishing to make a sacrifice brought an animal to the courtyard and then slaughtered it. The blood was collected by the priest. Next, the whole animal or parts of it was placed upon the altar to be consumed by fire. Finally, the priests of Israel usually consumed any meat that wasn't burned. Two important elements occurred during this offering. One, the individual offering the animal would often lay their, or would lay their hand upon the animal's head before slaughtering. This most likely indicated, at the very least, ownership of the animal. They at least indicated, at the very least, that I, this is my animal, I'm bringing this forth. By leaning on the animal, the worshiper signaled that this was his or her sacrifice to God. An extension of this idea is that of association. The worshiper associated himself with what happened to the animal. It's like the worshiper was saying that the animal is atoning for my sin and getting the death that I deserve. Now, there's a significance some scholars have thought in the laying of one hand versus the laying of two hands. You see, there's, in Leviticus chapter 16, there's something known as a scapegoat, which I don't know if you guys have known that this is where that term scapegoat comes from. The scapegoat was a goat that the high priest would lay both hands on and confess over it wickedness and rebellion of Israel. The goat would then carry on it the sins of the people, and the day of the atonement, the goat would be released into the wilderness. So the term scapegoat came from that idea, is that the priest would lay both his hands, and by laying on both hands, it seemed to be a transference of the sin of the people upon the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would then be released on the day of, day of atonement. The other important element of this offering is the special instructions given in regard to use and disposal of blood. With the purification offering, the sacrificial blood was used to cleanse sacred objects within the sanctuary, which were defiled due to human sin or impurity. With the other types of sacrifices, the blood was collected and sprinkled against the bronze altar. These ritual actions reflect the importance with which the Israelites viewed blood. To them, it symbolized life. For this reason, sacrificial blood was a powerful antidote to the consequences of sin and impurity. Now, this is fascinating stuff. This is like stuff like my geekiness, nerd part of me is like, whoa, this is so cool. Animals and scapegoats and altars and fires and so on. But what's the point? Why do I care now for this weird stuff that happened then? And so I'm glad you asked. Here are my four reasons why God instituted these practices, these, suff- these offerings, these sacrifices. Here they are. Number one is to show his holiness. Two, to worship. Three, to bring his people together. And four, to show Jesus. 
I'll say that again. One, to show his holiness. Two, to worship. Three, to bring his people together. And four, to show Jesus. Number one, to show his holiness. Of all the words used in the Bible to express the character of God, holy is one of the most prominent. The Hebrew word used as holy is the word kadosh. The origins of the word is obscure. Most people describe holy um, to th- or like to think of holy as set apart, as good, as pure. The problem is when you call holy good or pure, you're defining holy based on your own understanding of what is good or pure. Does that make sense? When one says God is holy, you think good, pure, and what you're doing is defining what God's holiness is by your own definition of what is good and what pure is. Leviticus does something so different. It's so cool. It defines holy by the acts, uh, by the saving acts of God. The whole complexity of laws relating to holiness is meant to bring home to Israel that God reveals his holiness in his saving acts and by keeping of his covenant. Graham Goldsworthy says this, the covenant as the possession of the elect nation means that the character of God revealed in his word and acts must be the mark of his people. The law, which was so easily misused and made to be the grounds of exclusiveness and self-righteousness, was in fact that which highlighted the nature of the new creation, which is being formed around the faithful while they remain within the old, fallen, and sinful, confused world. In other words, the offerings, the laws, the rituals were meant to show the covenant faithfulness of God and his holiness that is shown and revealed by this faithfulness. What, what they're saying when we say God is set apart, when he's holy, they're not defining by their own ideas of what is good, what is pure, but they're defining it by God's saving works. So what shows what holiness is, what good is, what pure is, is the very works that God establishes that shows his character. Setting the people apart to show covenant faithfulness was meant to show God's faithfulness and his holiness. So these laws, these rituals, these offerings show covenant faithfulness which show in turn his holiness. Two, these sacrifices, these offerings were meant for worship. John Calvin in his institute says this, God did not command sacrifices in order to busy his worshipers with earthly exercises. Rather, he did so that he might lift their minds higher. This also can be clearly discerned from his own nature. For as it is spiritual, only spiritual worship delights him. My people, I want you to understand that human beings are worshipful beings. We long to worship. Not only do we long to worship, we will worship. It might not be golden calves or ancient deities. It may be science or a sports team or a worldview. Very commonly, often, it might just be yourself. We worship This is evident. We give our devotion, our presence, our sacrifices, our emotion to something. And John Calvin here is saying, God in his goodness did not command these sacrifices just something for them to do. He did it so that they can understand what worship is supposed to be. God in his goodness gave his people a means of worshiping him. He gave them sacrifices, offering, rituals so they can focus on and love God's covenant faithfulness. You need to understand that everyone around the ancient Israelites were worshiping. They were offering animal sacrifices to other gods. They were engaging in cult worship of Baal. They were worshiping golden cows. But Yahweh, God, set apart a system that allowed them to worship freely regardless of income status and allowed them to be in presence of him. God had to instruct his people how to worship him, not only because they did not know, but because they were also unfit to worship him. They were sinners and couldn't come into God's presence. The law and these offerings provided redemption and a chance for an ability to worship. 
And one key element to worship is sacrifice. The people were made to sacrifice as a part of worship. And it wasn't because God was like me and just like the fatty portion of the meat offered to him. He didn't just ask for the best because that's what he liked to eat. It wasn't also because God wanted to feed the priests. God called for an animal sacrifice because blood was sacred and it pointed to something that we'll speak about later. But also because worship entails, needs to entail sacrifice. Let me say that again. Worship, true worship needs sacrifice. And let me tell you why. As people, how do we place any worth on something? Often by the sacrifice it takes to get that something. How hard it was to get. When I was younger, I wanted a pair of Jordans so bad. I mean, with everything in me, I wanted Jordans. So I started saving. I convinced my parents that for my birthday and for Christmas, they can combine both of those and then just pay for half. Just pay for one Jordan, one shoe. Because I was going to pay for the other shoe. And so I mowed, I raked, I cleaned, and I finally saved enough for one Jordan. So with that one Jordan, my parents one Jordan, I was able to have a set of Jordans. I got them, and you better believe I wouldn't let a speck of dirt on them. I would wash them when I got home from school every single day. I worked so hard for them. I valued them so much. Looking back, I think I got the ugliest Jordans they ever made. But man, did I love them. And I really did. I got the ugly ones that had the Velcro that crossed over. Those were like, not the awesome ones with the white and the, the, the black, you know, shiny black part on the bottom. Those were the best ones. I got the ugly ones. But I loved my Jordans. They were so beautiful to me. People, I want you to understand something. The Israelites were called to sacrifice a pristine animal because it was difficult to get. It was sacrificial. This shows the significance of worship, the importance of it. It shows that worship means something. God doesn't have us do empty rituals that have no purpose. God calls us, allows us to worship him in a manner that makes a difference, that has significance and carries weight. God could have said, bring mud to the offering. God could have said, bring grass. But that's not what he does, because it doesn't convey worth. It doesn't convey dignity. It doesn't give worth to the one who is the giver. It doesn't give worth to the one who we give to. God calls us to sacrifice, to fully invest, to be engaged and to care and to be passionate so that worship isn't just rote singing, worship isn't just rote praying, worship isn't just kind of rote giving, it means something to us, it connects us, it, it has a significance to us, it gives dignity to us. There is sacrifice in worship and it's his goodness that gives that to us and brings importance to it. The third reason God called for these sacrifices and offering is to bring his people together and to set them apart. Remember, God is just forming this new people out of slavery into a new nation. They didn't have a culture or an identity. God is not forging this, creating a shared worship experience, a shared tradition. Something that is different from how everyone else does it. It's just something you do. Something different. This is, this is like a, a family ritual you have that may seem strange to everyone else, but to, but to you and your family. You know, and when you finally bring in that boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, when you get to that point where like, hey, you can come be with my family for this ri- dinner time, but we do this weird ritual thing, or like maybe we play this game after every uh, Thanksgiving meal, and when they finally come in, that's when you know that they're actually in, you know? John Walton said, because sacrifice was so common in the ancient world, the God of Israel gave specific instructions to the people who were covenanted to him. They were to be different, a holy people set apart for him and bound exclusively to him. They were to be free from the spiritual poison that fatally infected the sacrifices of surrounding cultures. Unlike those sacrifices designed to twist the arm of a reluctant deity, the sacrifices of Israel were provisions of God's grace to bestow grace. 
So they were not cheap imitations of their neighbor's offerings. Their sacrifices were divinely prescribed and personally revealed, and therefore were to be carefully performed, even while doing what came naturally. The people were playing with the fire of God's holiness, and so needed to approach him, not as they chose, but as he required. God is setting his people apart. He's creating a new culture. He's creating a new system. He's not creating this way of giving something the way everybody else did so that you can convince a deity to bless you. He's offering them a means of entering into family covenant relationship with him. They were given to him, revealed by him for his people so that they can worship him in intimacy. Number four, ultimately these sacrifices and offerings are meant to show us Jesus. Now, as you were following along, as you were listening to the sermon, you, know, you probably saw, oh, we talk about male and animal without defect. You heard talk about um, the, the, the um, scapegoat, the idea of the scapegoat. You heard talk about um, offering up, the, like, like the Passover lamb. You can see all these revelations. And obviously, for those of us this side of Jesus, we see Jesus in all of it. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 says this. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Um, tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and cows, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The book of Hebrews teaches that the divine requirements of sacrifice and priesthood are met perfectly in and by the one person, Jesus Christ. The New Testament testifies that both Jesus' sacrifice of himself and Jesus' priesthood are better and more effective than those recounted in Leviticus. And that the Leviticus sacrifices and priesthood prefigure and point to that of Jesus Christ. Do you guys hear that? That all the sacrifices in Leviticus, the, the animals, the grain, the, 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 all these offerings, it, it showed to that Jesus himself was the one that was offered. But not only that, he was also the priest who mediated. He was the better priest. He was the better offering. So this is what the book of Hebrews says. But not only that, he was also in the better tabernacle. First, Jesus Christ entered a greater heavenly tabernacle, not the man-made tabernacle, which was only a model of the heavenly one. He actually presented the greater offering as a greater priest in the heavenly tabernacle. He entered the tabernacle not by the presence, um, not by the blood of animals, but by his own precious blood. His work was Jesus, the result of Jesus Christ's work is that it brings eternal redemption to his people. That his sacrifice was once and for all complete and effective and needs no addition, augmentation, continuation, or reapplication. It is a once for all sacrifice. Because of the work of Jesus, we are now free to worship God the way we are meant to, to show his holiness and to be united as a people. You see, the, these beautiful sacrifices, as we now see them, instead of being a weird weird animal and burning of fat and offering of grain that has no yeast but has salt. They're not just weird elements that we just don't understand and we kind of skip over now. We see how they're meant for worship. We see how they're meant to show God's holiness. We see how they're meant to um, bring a people together and we see how they all ultimately point to Jesus. So instead of it being weird, we now see the beauty of God's redemptive story, his incredible plan at work. And because of the work of Jesus as the one who was offered, the one who mediated the offering, we see that his offering is now made complete and no longer does it have to happen again. 
Our worship is through Jesus. We do not bring animals and slaughter as our sacrifice, nor do we bring fine flour and olive oil poured on top. God has already dealt with our sin through Christ. So we offer ourselves in light of this, in devotion and adoration. My people, what we offer now, instead of animals and flowers, we offer our lives as a living sacrifice because of the work of Jesus. Not so that we earn salvation, not that we earn our place, but because of our place in light of the family of God. Romans 12, one says this, therefore I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. My people, we all worship. We now worship the way God's called us to. Following what we see here in Leviticus, that the beautiful call of worship is sacrifice. So may we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Waypoint Church, in these weird, unprecedented times, we're faced with so much indecision, uh, so much anxiety, so much unknown. But what we do know this is this, that the work of Christ was finished upon the cross, that he was the ultimate sacrifice offering, he was the ultimate priest. So we now have a priest who ever pleads our case before God, and before the heavenly tabernacle. So may we offer our lives as a response to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work. God, we thank you for the, the book of Leviticus that shows your holiness. God, that it brings this call to worship you into light, this, this time of building your body together and ultimately points to Jesus. God, we thank you for the work of Jesus. That he was the perfect, God, the perfect one who never sinned, who lived the life of love that fulfilled the law who died upon the cross, offering himself as a sacrifice, who restores and then redeems his, and rescues his people so that we can live in renewed creation with him as we see your creation being renewed now and will ultimately be fully restored. God, may we offer our lives as a living sacrifice in light of that. May we offer our lives as our worship, God, because we will worship something. May we worship you in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.